News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the World Hockey Championships are going on right now, but as we've talked about this week, I'm not sure a lot of Canadians are paying attention. I mean, is it that it's an unusual time of year to be holding these? Or is it that we are concerned about what we've been hearing about Hockey Canada? Well, a new poll from the Angus Reid Institute might help us shed some light on that. And Shachi Curl is with us to talk more about it. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. This is such an interesting topic to ask Canadians about right now. So how are Canadians feeling about the organization Hockey Canada? Well, they are expressing uh, a not insignificant amount of skepticism as to whether or not the organization, which as we know uh, runs programs for a lot of youth hockey across the country, uh, is is going to be in terms of its success in changing culture. Of course, so much of the conversation around Hockey Canada in the last few months has has really been dominated by not only allegations of sexual assault by by players associated with Hockey Canada programs, but also how the organization dealt with those allegations. And that's really the thing. And the one thing I would say, Simi, is we're seeing some really striking findings where people with a personal relationship with the youth hockey, maybe they coached, maybe their kids played, maybe they had a, a spouse or a partner who played or, or was part of that ecosystem. I mean, hockey is Canada's game. Yeah. Um, they, they are as likely to identify a problem and identify uh, the culture of sexual misconduct as a major issue uh, within youth hockey as people outside of the game. And that's really important. I want to explain this because often you can have people on like two different planets or two different universes and people who are close to it and in it have a very different view on the world than people who are outside of it and maybe just consuming news and making judgments based on what they're hearing about as opposed to what they are experiencing firsthand. In this case, the data is really clear. People with a personal connection to youth hockey are almost as likely to identify sexual misconduct as a major problem in the sport as side with no connection. Wow. Okay. Let's talk about the skepticism here too, because Hockey Canada, you know, they'll tell you, oh, we've laid out a plan. We're dealing with this. We are moving forward. But how are people reacting to that? Is there skepticism? There's a significant amount of skepticism and there is a desire to see change at the leadership level. Now, we know um, the the Hockey Canada chair has uh, has uh, retired early. His term was coming up, Mr. Brindamore. But there is a desire to see further change in terms of leadership to bring this about. So when we hear the CEO uh, saying he wants to be the person to lead the organization um, and the community through uh, a period of culture change, you're seeing people, again, close to the game and far from the game, kind of shaking their heads and going, uh-uh, we don't really think you're the person to do this. Ultimately, it will be the CEO's decision. But I think that's a pretty big finding. The other thing that struck me was that, again, people with a proximity to the game were vastly supportive of the federal government's decision to withhold um, a significant amount, I think it was $8 million in funding, freeze that funding um, pending you know, some, some action from Hockey Canada. And when you've got people close to the game saying, this was a good decision, despite the fact that it might have actually affected their own programs or their own youth teams, 
again, um, it, it says to me there's, there is uh, some level of consensus, which is such a weird thing to find in Canada in public opinion today. No kidding. Okay, so was there any kind of gender difference in terms of the reaction to this? Some big gender differences. So um, perhaps not surprisingly, perhaps surprisingly, you do see a far greater uh, propensity among older women, women over the age of 55. Let's not call them older, shall we? Yes, women please. over the age of 50. Yes, okay. <laughs> women over the age of 55, much more likely to say that, um, that, that uh, sexual misconduct uh, within youth hockey is a major problem, especially women with proximity to the game. Younger men, those aged 18 to 34, much more likely to say it's not a problem at all. But let me, let me again just sort of take a moment and say, uh, even though you've got more young men saying it's not a problem, the majority do say it's, it's at least something of an issue. It's either a major issue or a minor issue. So again, across the divide, even though you do see some pretty big gender differences and some pretty big differences along age demographics, younger people less checked into this issue than older people, you still have significant numbers of younger men saying, yeah, this is a major issue, about 40% do. Wow, okay. And so when we look at this as well, is it just hockey or is there a recognition that perhaps this issue is bigger than just one sport? Well, part of the big takeaway here, Simi. And, and it's the fact that people think that this is happening in all kinds of sports. It's just that we're focused perhaps inordinately or, or, or in an outsized manner on hockey because, again, we're, we're a hockey-mad nation. We are a hockey nation. But there, there is little doubt in the minds of Canadians that uh, this is something that's happening in other sports, in other youth programs. It's an issue that's pervasive in other parts of sporting life. But because so much focus and, and frankly, so much money and so much people hours, you know, what, what do the kids do? They play hockey, among other sports. But because we're so focused on hockey in this country, uh, of course, that, that spotlight burns even brighter on the hockey community. Wow. Okay. So, you know, what's fascinating about me, Shachi, is I so rarely hear you say that there was consensus on anything. But in this right? poll, it sure seems like Canadians believe something has to change here. They are they are calling for that change. They are supporting that change, and they are looking for that change. And they're expressing a bit of doubt right now uh, as to whether or not um, the current leadership at Hockey Canada is is capable of leading that change. All right. Thanks so much for that. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. BC has a public health emergency. It's toxic drug crisis that has caused the deaths of thousands of people in this province over the last, what, five, six, seven years. We had more figures released from the coroner's office this week that showed many more people died even between January and June of this year. It's a lot. On a per capita basis, the situation in surrounding cities is also terrible. We're talking about cities in the interior, Penticton, Kelowna, Vernon. They are also seeing this problem. So what are we doing? And is it the wrong thing to do? Why isn't it making a dent in these numbers? Joining us now is Sheila Malcolmson, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you very much for being here. Morning, Cindy. Now, I know we've talked to you several times about this, and it always, you know, it seems to be the same conversation as, is what we're doing enough? Why aren't these numbers going down? 
just a terrible reminder of how for six years now we've been in we've been losing community members but the coroner's report that we such a, a, a terrible confirmation about what we've been feeling and, and hearing in our communities and, and my my just my deepest condolences to every community, every family that's lost a loved one. It's um, and all the people on the front line that are working so hard to save lives under such pressure. It's I recognize how hard it is on them too. You know, so 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 to, in answer to your question, almost every week we've been adding new supports across a diversity of approaches because we have to throw everything we've got at this. There isn't any one single approach or intervention that, that is going to turn this around. So we are, are working on, on every front. But, the, but the, the wicked part of this problem is that the increases in drug toxicity, how strong and poisonous the drugs are on the market, on the illicit market, has gone up so much during the course of the pandemic. And that's what has really outpaced our ability to add new supports and save lives. Before, in the two months before the pandemic, the um, concentration of fentanyl in uh, in the overdose deaths that the of, of the people that died that the coroner reported were between 4% and 8%. And in June, coroner reported they were 27% toxicity. So the drugs are so, so much more poisonous. And that is why we continue to lose so many lives, despite adding new treatment beds, adding new overdose prevention sites, prescribing safe supply, all the interventions that we've made are saving lives, but but it's been outpaced by increases in drug toxicity, tragically. Are we reaching the people, though, who are most in danger? Like we're making a lot of effort to people who have addiction issues, like that's obviously ramping up. But a lot of these people who are dying are people who wouldn't consider themselves an addict, right? Somebody who recreationally uses on a Saturday night and next thing you know, the drug toxicity has gotten them. How do we reach those people? It's such a good question. It's such a good point. Um, The coroner and I talk often about this, as does Bonnie Henry. How is it that we can, you know, some standing up a new supervised consumption site. There was one when we took government. Now there's over 40 adding inhalation sites. Those are saving lives, undoubtedly. But you're right. As a recreational user, the people that are sometimes dying of drug toxicity just never even contemplated reaching out to the healthcare system. So we, it's another example of ways that we're trying things differently. Uh, we ha- are working and funding the construction industry. They piloted this on Vancouver Island with our health authority. Um, they've now expanded it across British Columbia to bring uh, drug safety and treatment talks into the the warning safety talks that happen on construction sites. Uh, the average age of people dying of drug toxicity is 42, and uh, 80% of the deaths are in men. Um, and so, and and construction is a place where people can get occupational injuries um, and have pain that then gets, um, you know, maybe brings them into the illicit drug market, let alone recreational use. And so that has been a really important intervention and one that we're really grateful to our partners in labor and in the construction corporate side for, for fanning that out. We've also have been promoting 
uh, through, you know, on bus shelters and, and all kinds of places that, you know, everybody might filter through uh, tools like our Lifeguard app, where you can download an app that if you are going to use drugs by yourself, that you can basically set a timer on this. And in the event that you become unresponsive, then 911 will be called. Uh, those are just two examples of, of tools that we're funding that are off the, the traditional approach of, of simply standing up new treatment beds and, and new uh, addiction support centers. So what is next, though? What are the next steps that you're going to take? Well, we continue almost every week to announce new detox, sobering and assessment beds, treatment and recovery beds. Uh, we're continuing to announce and open new youth substance use and mental health centers in partnership with Foundry. Uh, we're working towards having 23 of them across the province. They're a place that young people up to age 24 can get connected with a whole range of primary health care, but with a real focus on, on substance use um, and, uh, and mental health and counseling support. Uh, we are continuing to expand our prescribed safe supply program. We started it just two weeks into the pandemic. We announced, me and Bonnie Henry uh, announced last summer an expansion and, uh, and that continues to roll out in every health authority, and we're continuing to add new substances to that because we heard from people on the ground and people who use drugs that what was offering as a prescription wasn't strong enough to hold people to keep them from falling into withdrawal. So we're adding new, including uh, fentanyl products. That's how, um, you know, how much the, the profile of drug use has changed that we're now prescribing fentanyl patches um, and Fentora as something that nurse practitioners and doctors can prescribe um, and and continue to look at new approaches across the, the continuum because you know, just like there are many paths into addiction, there are many paths out um, and and there isn't any one single approach we have to try and, and offer everything so that people who are at risk of overdose have tough options. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thanks for the conversation, Simi. It's important. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. I think many of us out there, many people like to believe that, you know what, things have pretty much gotten back to normal. There's not a whole lot of COVID-19 restrictions anymore. So when a story like this next one comes along and shows us, well, wait a minute, there are still some restrictions and they do have an impact, then yeah, it is a bit of an eye-opener. For instance, you may have seen the headlines this week that Simon Fraser University is shifting four of its scheduled football games that are upcoming to Blaine, to that big football field that you always see, you know, on the highway there at Blaine High School. And that's going to happen between October 1st and November 12th. So why are these four quote-unquote home games going to be played south of the border? Well, it is because of COVID-19 border restrictions. How did this all come about? Joining us now is Teresa Hansen, the SFU Senior Athletics and Recreation Director. Teresa, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, what went into making this decision? That must have been a tough one. Oh, certainly a tough decision. You know, um, most disappointing for our student-athletes. We had an opportunity to have five home games in our brand-new stadium atop Burnaby Mountain this year. And, um, you know, the pandemic is still causing a little bit of havoc for our athletic program. 
And um, as you know, we're the only Canadian school in the NCAA Division Two. And the border crossing is, uh, we do that every weekend <laughs> with all our teams. So, you know, um, last year we, we joined as an affiliate member uh, in a new conference for football only in the Lone Star Conference. And um, in order to do that with the current restrictions, you need to be fully vaccinated to uh, cross the border. And we're in the unfortunate situation where um, these schools that we were to play this year at Simon Fraser are not able to um, field a team in a safe or practical way due to the number of unvaxxed players and coaches on their teams. So we need to, we need to make a decision um, that uh, and manage this in um, you know the best possible way for our student athletes. And in order to provide um, a full season for them, we had to look at um, hosting the game south of the border. Were you hoping, perhaps, that these restrictions by now would not be an issue? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I am. Uh, I, you know, we were thinking, we were hoping, certainly last fall, that these restrictions would ease at the border. I think we've seen many, many restrictions ease, but uh, not the vaccination requirement to come into Canada. So it's unfortunate. You know, we we have um, strongly encouraged our student athletes to uh, to get vaccinated. Um, you know. Um, Vaccination is one of the most effective ways to protect protect your health. And um, so our student athletes have done that in order to travel across the border, um, you know, in addition to, um, you know, their, their personal health. Um, but, you know, not, not everyone shares that same, you know, that, that same philosophy. And we're in a situation here that um, they can't travel across the border. So did I hear you correctly? Did you say this was the first year that you would have been playing in the brand new stadium at Simon Fraser University? It's, it has not been played in before? No, it op- it did open last year in COVID, and uh, we played two home games at Simon Fraser last year. And our schedule was modified last year across our sports in the fall due to COVID. But this is the first year that we were going to host five um, conference games in our stadium. So now with moving four of the games, we will have one game uh, at home against Central Washington as a conference game. And then we'll be playing four games in Blaine and the rest on the road. Okay, and I re- I remember when SFU made that decision to join that Division Two NCAA. Mm-hmm. Uh, you never could you couldn't have foreseen something like this would come up. But does this just show you the pitfalls of something like that? Well, certainly challenging. And um, if you look at the last ten years, we've been in the NCAA for ten years now, which hard to believe, but it's been uh, just over ten years. And uh, the landscape for football has significantly changed. When we joined, there were six football schools within the GNAC conference, which is our home conference for, for the rest of our sports. And um, three of those schools have dropped football. So we used to play Western Washington University. We used to play Humboldt State in California and Azusa Pacific in California. And all three of those schools have dropped their football program. So we have three schools left in Division Two that are um, located in the Pacific Northwest. So it's very, very challenging to um, schedule uh, to schedule. And we're allowed to play 11 games uh, as part of our schedule and um, joining as an affiliate member in the Lone Star because they had lost some members, too. It, um, you know, it ensured the members in both leagues had enough games to fill out a schedule. So it's 10 teams, nine games. And, um, you know, on paper, it looks really good. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we couldn't. Um, 
you know, everything that's happened with the pandemic, it has sure caused havoc for sure. Um, the, and the impact is still being felt across our athletic program. What kind of benefit or what are the benefits then of SFU having made that decision 10 years ago? What were the good things that happened for the school? Oh, gosh, the, the list is long. <laughs> but, you know, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to provide student athletes this opportunity in Canada that um, they can't get anywhere else. So they can come to Simon Fraser, get an amazing education at a, at a world-class university, and play in the NCAA. And that was, that was really part of, of that thrust of, of moving into the NCAA. So when you look at that and you look at how our teams and our student-athletes have performed over the years on that stage, it's remarkable. And um, now, you know, some sports, it's, it's a little easier than others. And, and football is one of those sports that is very, very challenging. So there will still be a couple of home games played, right? You bet. So our, our home opener actually is uh, September 17th. We play Central Washington, which is one of our GNAC, GNAC um, schools, which is great. And then uh, we will host the Shrumble. After 12 years, uh, it's Simon Fraser's turn to host the Shrumble, and we're hosting it on December 2nd versus UBC in our new stadium. So we're very excited about that. And, you know, we, we're doing the best we can to um, bring a home field atmosphere to blame for the, these four games that we have to move there. It's the closest we can get to playing uh, in Canada that's not in Canada. And so, we're going to do everything we can um, to, to get fans there uh, on both sides of the border and really have a, a great atmosphere for our athletes. Right. So will there be the, a way to do that then for fans to go down there and see these games if they want to? For sure. Uh, we're, we're just talking through that, what that could look like. Um, you know, if we're able to, to do buses to take fans down or not, you know, there, there's the border requirements too. So it, it adds, adds another layer of, uh, of uh, coordination, but we are looking at that. And there's certainly a lot of interest in Blaine and Bellingham uh, for football in, in their neck of the woods for, for college football. So that's, that's really exciting. And let me ask you this, Teresa, then if things do change, if the government does say mm-hmm. that, okay, we're going to get rid of these, um, you know, restrictions for the, for the border, does that change things for you? Like how quickly can those games come back to, to the SFU campus? Well, that's, that's a really good question. And, and we'd like to think that, yes, we would, we would be able to flip that switch. Um, but, you know, when you start entering in contractual agreements with facilities and, and rental and, and um, you know, transportation, it's not as easy as just flipping a switch, but we would certainly look at that. I, um, I would, uh, um, you know, I'd love to be optimistic that these restrictions are going to change in the next couple months, but I, I'm not, uh, certainly not seeing that indication yet. No, it doesn't seem that way, right? But you never know. Teresa, yeah. thank you so much That's for great. your time. Thank you so much. That's Teresa Hansen, the Simon Fraser University Senior Athletics and Recreation Director, talking about the tough decision they had to make about some of their football season's home games uh, that they cannot play up at SFU in their new stadium because of the border restrictions, meaning people who come into Canada must be fully vaccinated. Some of the schools could not guarantee that of their players and there just wouldn't be enough players. So they are moving four of their home games. That's SFU moving four of their home games to Blaine, Washington. You know, there's that big high school football field that you can see if you're heading towards the pack highway border crossing. Yes. So Blaine high school is going to be the place where four of these SFU home games are going to be played. They've got covered seating for about 2000 people. It's a pretty big field. Uh, But will SFU fans trek down there to go and see that? This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 CKNW. 
Is your favorite restaurant going to run out of your favorite drink? Well, as we know, the BCGEU has set up picket lines outside of the four major liquor distribution centers around the province. And that means that you can't go and get your alcohol if you're a bar, if you're a restaurant, if you're a liquor store. It's just not available to you. So these four centers have been targeted for job action. It's putting a lot of pressure on the service industry because they're no longer receiving their alcohol deliveries. So what does that mean for customers? Well, joining us now to talk about this is Ian Tossenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning, Ian. Hi, Simi. How you doing? I'm all right, but you must be feeling like, man, if it's not one thing, it is another. You know, and we had the pandemic, when the pandemic, I, looked, I was thinking about it last night, we were in control of that. Every conversation we had was like, how do we add value? How do we innovate? How do we work around this? How do we do all those kind of things? This one is a block. We are in the corner. I am, I'm actually, I won't say it, I am so disappointed in the BCGEU that wants to sacrifice an industry that is, is so fragile coming out of the pandemic. And to think that, you know, to put the leverage on, we are going to see businesses topple pretty quick here. Uh, so to your point, uh, Simi, um, we're seeing already seeing people out of products. Um, and very selective, you know, selectively starting to reduce uh, inventories are being reduced. They can't replenish them. Um, we, I was in a couple of liquor stores yesterday. These are a pretty good bellwether of things. Um, they're starting to see uh, run, run people, you know, sort of docking up, uh, running out of things. And it doesn't seem to me normal in, in when we have warehouses full of our product miles away in the modern society that it would be held hostage <laughs> to this industry, I, I just, I just think it's so insensitive, and it's, and it's so far off the charts. And I'm trying, we are trying as best we can to inject ourselves quietly with the BCGU and the government, um, and to, you know, the, 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 the order cycles are. We've missed an order cycle this week, so that means that your Simi's liquor order did not arrive. So now you're reducing your inventory. You're likely not going to get one next week. And it's likely going to take three weeks to restore stability to the, the system. And my point to the, is that the DCG, they know they have the power, is open the warehouses, let, this, let it flow through, and if they can't get satisfaction in the bargaining, and then do it again. But to just to, to shut it down and say, no, I think is, is really totally wrong. Right. So you're totally saying, wrong. listen, they could have done it for three days. They could have said, we're doing this for one week. Um, and that way businesses could adjust. But you feel like this open-ended job action is the problem. Well, yeah. And business hates uncertainty. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, and I get all these calls now. What do you think what's going to happen? No one knows. The government doesn't know what's going to happen. It's in the hands of the BCGU strategy makers. Um, but I think that, you know, I, I think they have to understand that at some point they're going to lose any sympathy by the public, especially when you're dealing with, you know, still this great urge for people to go to restaurants. And it's not just restaurants, Cindy. I mean, I'm getting calls now. People are having special events. Uh, people that are having weddings, small weddings, can't access product. All those different things are being affected here. And I just I think the public's just going to say enough is enough. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, they're in control of this because, as you say, they, they shut down the four warehouses. So, Ian, has there been any information coming to the restaurant industry from the BCGU? Have you reached out to them? What have you heard? Yeah, I have, Simi, and I've had good conversations with them. Um, they're not acrimonious conversations. I, I've made the effort to ensure that they understand the economics of the industry. 
you know, um, they keep saying they have 33,000 people. I say we have 200,000 people and 15,000 businesses that, uh, well, not 15,000 licensed businesses, probably about 8,000. But I said, you know, um, there's just, we, we, we need to work together on, and find a solution here. We, we can't get this. So we, we apart. And I, I think that they understand that, but they also understand their leverage points. And I understand that as well, too. But uh, I think that maybe the conversations that we have had, uh, I think, has hopefully made them think a little bit by why are we going to, you know, absolutely crash this industry. I would think they're a bit surprised. And I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but I think they're a bit surprised to realize how fragile our industry is. And that's, that's not just the small guys who are very vulnerable. It's also the bigger guys as well, too. And so um, I hope that that's going to have an impact. I'm going to keep discussing it with them. And uh, if I can be part of the solution here, we'll do everything we possibly can. There's just too much at stake here. Going into long weekends and we have tourism and we look stupid. I mean, this is like you have people coming to your restaurant and go, I'm sorry. Now, we can buy BC product direct from BC wineries and craft brewers and distillers. But, you know, there's only so much of that. And, it, and as I explained to the BCGU, you just don't sort of make a phone call and say, hey, Mission Hill, can I now buy your wines? And it happens within minutes. It, you need to establish the relationships and all the, the, the operational metrics around that. So at a time, as you know, and I've talked with you so many times about our labor shortage, our capacity is so limited financially and time-wise that um, the impact that they're going to have on us is going to be a lot more than I think they anticipated. Right. So yeah, it's, I just find that a bit surprising too, though, because it's, it's no small thing to take job action, Ian. And I'm just surprised that they didn't try to reach out or, or make this smoother for everybody knows what a tough time the last couple of years has been, particularly for your industry. Yeah, and they sort of said that, well, maybe we should have called you guys. Or, and I, I said, well, it's not like we're hard to find. I mean, well, yeah. And we've been here for, you know, and, we, and we, you know, we're battling this out. I mean, uh, this is not for the owners of restaurants. This is for the public at large. We serve the public. We are a hospitality. And so when, when I talk about the effect in our industry, I'm really talking about the effect in our communities and all the things that people enjoy about the things we're doing. So I hope that the fact that they, uh, and I say this respectfully, I respectfully ask them publicly to open the warehouses. We need that. And I think they're going to go a lot longer and have more public sympathy by doing that and working other angles uh, as opposed to just shutting the whole system down. So that's my plea to them. And I hope that the fact that we've been able to talk to them about the economics and and the brittleness of our industry will help them make some decisions that are a little bit more in the best interest of, you know, society right. at large. So Ian, then what are you hearing from restaurants and bars? How soon will say a customer notice that there's a problem? Uh, I just talked to someone a few minutes ago and they were saying that a few restaurants in West End are running out of, you know, higher end products and higher end tequilas. Um, I think we're going to be fine going into this weekend. So, you know, message to listeners, don't stop going to your restaurants. We'll find a way here, but your favorite items may not be there. I think it'll be this time next week. We're still in this semi. That's when we're going to really start to see a lot of a uh, lot of empty shelves and liquor stores and restaurants. So you may not be able to get your favorite Chardonnay or your your t- favorite tequila, but there'll be something there. Um, but again, it's it's just it's the, it's the inconvenience of having to go through all this at a time when business should be so focused on becoming stronger, becoming a great employer, attracting employees. So um, I would say we're all right this weekend, Simi, but uh, early next week, in the middle of next week, 
we're going to see lots of holes. All right. We'll be talking to you again, I'm sure. Ian, thank you. But, you know, Cindy, yep. tell people don't panic buy. Just be reasonable because there's someone behind you in line that wants that bottle of wine just as much as you do. So we got to kind of keep it calm here. That's a good advice, too. Ian, thanks. Thanks, Simi. That's Ian Tossinson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. This the idea of, I think, a liquor shortage concerns a lot of people, especially heading into a weekend, but nobody more so than restaurants and bars that have already had a tough time the last couple of years. And you heard the plea there. Uh, they are asking the BCGEU to help them out with this, be a little more understanding. We'll see what happens. What do you think about that? Simi at cknw.com.